Masters of Divinity. I am your host, Canada. Sorry, I don't. <laughs> I feel like we should be yelling at each other, Chuck. Chuck. <laughs> I, I I remember years ago hearing somebody criticize that movie about of it being just people yelling characters' names for two hours. Yeah, that's the meme. Yeah. And I I, I was like, oh, that's funny. And then I watching it last night, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much truth to this. <laughs> yeah, there is. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of. <laughs> Screaming each other's names, yeah, uh, and not just Tetsuo and Kaneda. A whole whole sloop of, of of names being yelled. Mm-hmm. Um, hello and welcome to Masters of Divinity. I'm your moderator JP, and I'm here as always with Father Chuck. Uh, what up? And occasional Matt is on his way. He's he's living up to his name, and I like that about him. I do. Yeah. And even he's... some of our fans like it. There's a comment left the other day. Someone said every time you refer to him as occasional Matt. I feel uh, joy. So it and <laughs> so we're gonna keep that going. You know, it took how many years of this podcast before we settled on a good name for him? I know it took a long time. Uh, my favorite I, was I had two favorites. Uh, the one you came up with, Yoga Matt. Yeah, that's my favorite. And if he was like a yoga hipster, like it'd be perfect. We would have still would have stuck. And the other one I came up with when we were doing the office, uh, a jump to conclusions, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> that was also good. Um, but it's kind of like because both of those are actual mats. <laughs> right. If Matt looked more like me, yoga mat would work better. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Um, but we've settled on occasional Matt, and that's who he is because he's he's occasionally here. Remember when he hated being backseat back Matt? Yeah, backseat Matt. That was that was the first one that we that we workshopped. <laughs> uh, it was fun. He, he, where, where are we? Are, is he, is he going to be our Tetsuo? Is that what's going to happen here? Like, is, oh no, are we, are we being a couple of uh, Kanadas and Yagamadas right now? Yamagata. Yamagata. <laughs> Yagamata. Yamagata. Let's see. I, I got to learn these names, dude. So we're doing, this is our second week of, of Madaku. We are diving into anime. And this week uh, was my turn to choose a title, and I chose the classic. 1988 film Akira or Akira as I've been referring to it like my whole life <laughs> well Akira I mean Akira that sort of uh, westernized pronunciation for the for the name I, I, yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong I don't think you have to you know we don't have to do that thing that like newscasters do where they like get like, oh, like they, they trill their R's a little too hard when they're like pronouncing Spanish words to sort of prove like yeah there's a whole uh, wonderfully funny um, SNL bit about that where there's like a bunch of office people hanging around in a conference room and they decide to eat uh, Mexican food and Jimmy <laughs> Smits is like over pronunciating like oh I see you're having a burrito <laughs> it's uh, it's one of those uh, kind of underrated SNL sketches that are actually funny yeah yeah that don't um, feature a character or a uh, concept that's repeated or, all the time or a or a celebrity cameo. Yeah, exactly. Of, well, it's Jimmy Smith's, but yeah. <laughs> oh, you mean cameo, cameo? Like, yeah, I know. What you're, okay, 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, instead, you know, like I don't know, Jim Carrey being Joe Biden. Anyway, oh, uh, oh, I didn't know about that one. Yeah, they they cast Jim Carrey as Joe Biden for SNL. <sighs> okay, well, we'll see how that goes. But like, I like Jim got, Carrey, so I'm not gonna. <laughs> I do like Jim Carrey, but you've got your own. You've got a cast for a reason. I know, I know, and that's we we should have an SNL episode. We really should. I have a lot of thoughts on SNL. I don't think I've shared any of them on the show. We should probably do that like shortly after Madaku's over. Yeah, because SNL's supposed to be coming back soon, so maybe that's a good time to like do that. Oh my gosh, I have so many thoughts. That's a yeah. good idea. Yes, that's it. I'm gonna write that down. SNL episode. Oh, you, um, should, you should have licked. You should have licked your pen first, like the tip. There you go. <laughs> um, work. Cool. So this week we're talking about Akira. Neo Tokyo is about to explode. Pictures presents a state-of-the-art adventure, Akira. You probably don't know what Akira is about, so I'll just do a quick run through on what this movie is all about. Uh, in Tokyo in 1988, the Japanese government was conducting experiments on children who exhibited psychic abilities. One of these children, named Akira, grew so powerful in his abilities that he destroyed Tokyo with a psychic singularity, which is a like a telekinetic A bomb. This set off World War III. Uh, but 33 years later, the war has ended and Tokyo has been reconstructed into the thriving uh, metropolis, Neo-Tokyo. Though the city has been rebuilt, it is overwrought with crime, political corruption, and constant civil unrest. Uh, Tetsuo, who is a member of a biker gang called the Capsules, crashes his motorcycle into Takashi, uh, an esper, or one of the original children that the Japanese government were experimented on. Uh, before World War Three, So this encounter triggers Tetsuo's own ESP abilities, and he's taken away by the military to be tested and experimented on. Uh, Kaneda, the leader of the capsules and Tetsuo's best friend since childhood, enlists freedom fighter K to help him save Tetsuo from the authoritarian military, which is led by like the, the, the dutiful Colonel Shikishima. Meanwhile, Tetsuo grows stronger in his powers while he's in captivity while he's in captivity and begins a journey of destruction through Neo-Tokyo in an attempt to find Akira and amass even more power. So Kaneda, K, the mysterious espers all attempt to stop Tetsuo before he brings about another cataclysmic event. And that's Akira. 
I had a I had a I had a Sophie's choice to make last night, JP, when I was watching it on Hulu. Yeah, which was sub or dub. <laughs> yeah, I know. That, I can't believe they made that choice available because I was the same. I was like, oh, what do I? Hmm. But I just I couldn't I could I had to do dubs. I just. Oh, you did. I did sub. Oh, you did. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm interested and, in that. I've never watched it with subs. Inter- yeah, well, which is kind of interesting because I had so getting a little ahead of ourselves. I'm I'm, I'm glad you picked this because. I realized that I had never actually seen Akira all the way through. Okay. Like, I had picked up, I had seen bits and pieces of it over the years, mm-hmm. but I had never actually sat down and watched it from opening to ending. So, which made me realize I had no idea what the movie is about. Not that I really even know what it's about now, but I, I didn't know what it was about. Um, but because I'd had exposure to it over the years in those bits and pieces, I had always seen it in the dub version. Right. So like when I when I think of Canada, you know, Canada, first of all, the name Canada, not 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 Canada, but Canada, Canada, um, yelling, you know, Tetsuo, like I had this certain, you know, sound in my head. And so hearing the Japanese actors was a little bit was a little bit jarring. But I decided mm-hmm. to do the I decided to go the sub route and realized that, yeah, the pronunciations are very different because Japanese names are very differently pronounced. You know, they drop out they sort of schwa and drop out vowels in the middle and so like it doesn't look it doesn't sound the way it looks on a page mm-hmm. you know things like that so um so that was you know that was kind of an interesting little thing. that's cool i'm glad you watched in oh. subs because I, I i had that same sophie's choice but i think i was just like no i really need to like i really need to absorb the story and yeah. as much as like i'm definitely not the kind of person that's like Ooh, subtitles! I don't want to read the movie because I mean, look at me, dude. I have, I have subtitled movies, yeah. and I think you can absorb absorb the story, but it it takes a little bit of effort out of what you're doing, and I'm kind of on a time crunch, <laughs> you know. Well, so, and let me also say that I'm gonna I'm gonna go to bat for the dub, even though okay. I didn't see the dub. But I'm gonna go to bat for the dub, and the reason I'm gonna go to bat for the dub is that as we'll get into it, I'm sure what make what really gets Akira what what made Akira stand out in 1988 when it came out was or is it 86 88 88 okay mm-hmm. when it came out was its visuals yeah and I, I there were a few times where i was wanting to take in stuff on the screen but i was too focused reading the subtitles to be right. able to take in the visuals and so i would argue the dub is the superior way of watching it because that way you can okay. actually see the screen rather than reading the text and yeah, and I, I, I think you're right, for the most part. Um, I think it takes a bit more discipline and a bit more practice to be able to read subtitles and take in what's going on on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, so this one I don't really have, <laughs> um, unfortunately. I, I've failed my people of film Twitter. Um, don't people, don't tell people of film Twitter that I watch it with dub. By the way. <laughs> Uh, but what's interesting about the dub is like the the dubbed version. There's like two dubbed versions, and the one that we watch, the one that's on Hulu, is the most recent one that was dubbed in 2001, with uh, Johnny Young Bosch as Kaneda. Uh, Johnny Young Bosch played uh, Adam in the Power Rangers. Oh right, he was the second Black Ranger, the Asian Black Ranger. Um, so I think that's I when I, but the first one, but when I saw Akira, when it was first revealed to me, I was like in the 90s. I, I watched the 1988 version, and that dubbing is it's it's rough. I've watched like videos of it and stuff, and I was like, "Wow, I remember it's being like pretty bad, and it's kind of actually worse than I remember." <laughs> so JP, yes, I'm gonna moderate with my mic. 
<laughs> How bad does this sound? I don't have headphones. This is bad. No, sir, this is a Wendy's. Uh, um, you sound like like Henry Rollins. Oh, okay. Again, when well, we you know, punk rock podcasting. Yeah. I, I. Uh, so JP, why did you pick Akira? Uh, I chose it because it was the first anime I've ever watched, and um, it had a significant impact on me. Sort of the same kind of impact you'd had watching any classic film for the first time when you're young and like impressionable you know you watch a classic now it's like okay yeah i could see why it's a classic you pretty level head as you approach it right but when you're young it either like blows your mind or you just like don't care you don't see what other people see in it right this is one of those movies that really stuck with me it struck me and it was because i think i I never actually seen an animated movie with like this level of like violence uh this level of drama um, and also just the, like, technique involved. And, you know, I saw on VHS, and even then I was still really impressed. Um, and the, the real, the core to why I wanted to talk about it is because it's, it's a movie that I always kind of considered to be one of my, like, in my top 100, you know? Despite all my feelings toward anime throughout the years, it was always in my top 100. Uh, but I've never had anybody to talk about with. I've never talked about it. Interesting. Like I've yeah, always, it's always just existed in my head, and I've always seen all these years. I've always seen it referenced in so many movies, and I'd be like, Ah, Akira, and people would be like, What? I'm like, never mind, <laughs> you know. <laughs> or I'll, I'll see a filmmaker mention Akira, like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. See because you'd be like, What? And I just forget it. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel, I, I feel a little bit like Akira is sort of. It's sort of the animated movie equivalent to Watchmen. Yeah. Where you've got people like, I don't read comic books, but Watchmen is a great novel, right? Like, there's that kind of totally. sense that it, yeah, so they'll be like, I don't watch anime, but Akira. Yeah, I was that guy. So, yeah, it's it's always it's had a space in my head. It's always uh, uh, sort of influenced, you know, uh, it's, it's influenced a standard that I've had when it comes to science fiction and action and stuff. And it's even kind of influenced some of my own work. Uh, I've never really revealed this to, to many people, but the very first screenplay I ever wrote had a very similar dynamic between uh, Kaneda and Tetsuo. And it's also kind of informed some of my other work that I've kind of done, because that's a relationship that I've always been really fascinated by in, in all forms of storytelling, of, of like best friends who become adversaries or enemies. And... You know, does it become like I have to, we're fighting each other because we hate each other, or is it because we think we're looking out for each other? You know, mm-hmm. we're, t- we're taking care of one another, but we're also like trying to kill each other. <laughs> I've always been fascinated by that, and it's always informed my work, and it's always been a kind of story that I've been really drawn to. Um, why is there some kind of deep psychological reason? I don't know. Probably, <laughs> I haven't really explored it. It's the same thing that kind of that that like always that had my like jaw dropping when like Buffy and Angel were fighting, you know? Why well, I loved that storyline so much. Right, right. Or like just whenever Superman and Batman had to fight or something. I just I like that dynamic. I think it's really interesting. And I think there's well, really creative things you can do with it. Yeah, well and I think too the the idea that has the the idea that like Smallville tried to bring up, the idea that Lex Luthor and Superman yeah. were friends at some point, right? Mm-hmm. Uh you know, that's I mean, and that, and that even goes I mean, back to Xavier and Magneto, to, right? Oh yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Was well, so it? I mean, kind of goes back to like the that that really great Star Trek episode, Balance of Terror, where mm-hmm. 
you know, Kirk and um, the Romulan commander learn that they are that in another, what is he says, like in another, you know, something like in another world, they would have been friends, hmm. you know, that, 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 that same kind of, there's a mutual ad- admiration in the midst of antagonism. Right. Um, well, you, I want to back up for a second though, JP, because you said something about how Akira set visual standards for you. I don't know about that. <laughs> I just okay. meant standards in terms of story, not so much the, the visual stuff. Like when we okay. get down to the technical stuff, I'm actually not super well versed in that. I only kind of recently learned about like what makes Akira special technically. Okay. Um, but but, at the, but still at the same time, there was that sort of reveal that like um, genres and animations aren't just aren't aren't just for certain audiences, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of a big. Uh, arc in my learning about cinema of, of like playing with genre you know i'm a kid watching a cartoon but this cartoon has a scene where like this dude's like guts just come out of his stomach and he's trying to put them right. back in <laughs> and watching that again i still have kind of had that visceral reaction yeah oh i uh, did too um i'm just that whole like scene alone by the way where like tetsuo gets out for the first time and like they confront the clowns again and it's miserable uh miserable as in like that's how it makes you feel um so that's that's why I chose it because it has a it had an impact on me, and I've watched a lot of anime since then. And um, the only other ones that have had that kind of impact would be like the End of Evangelion, <laughs> or um, our, my neighbor Totoro. I think had a impact, but but a much nicer impact. I would say. Right. <laughs> this is such a like I said in the last episode. This is such a one hundred eighty degrees away from my neighbor Totoro, but almost kind of says the same thing, almost in a way we get to some things about like uh, responsibility and growing up and stuff. And true. Ja- there's a lot of ingrained sort of Japanese culture and anxiety, history, historical anxieties and stuff. Right. Um, but we'll get to that. Yeah. Um, um, so yeah. So why do you like it? Well, I, I love it because. Why do you love it? Love it. Like it. All right, I have things. Pers- I have my notes. Read your notes. Okay, so first of all, I love the characters. Like I like I mentioned before, I love the tension between the two best friends. Um, you know, I'm drawn to stories about best friends who become enemies or adversaries. Uh, I love the story of Kaneda and uh, and Tetsuo. Kaneda has like a Marty McFly sort of Daniel Larusso swagger to him, mm-hmm. and um, Tetsuo is like a weakling, but Kaneda cares very much about him and protects him so it's it's exciting to me to watch their power dynamic switch and to watch their relationship they still have like a, a relationship but the relationship changes um uh, but it switches so drastically and that Kaneda ultimately sees it as his responsibility to stop him he's still taking care of him um i also really love the uh the scale and the scope of the story that's that's unfolding um i love that it's like you have like multiple large scale events happening like civil unrest military coup uh this mythic story about these psychic kids and uh akira himself um all sort of vying for power and leading to destruction uh but in the midst of it it's just like a little biker gang (laughs) that's like kind of deciding not just the outcome of like a society but also like uh, the history or the the evolution of humanity like i love that kind of 
that sort of scale and ju- juxtaposition of the two. And I love the sort of kind of mishmashing of genres a little bit. And kind of, again, going to the thing, well, I like watching genres being played with. Um, like, it, it well, just, like and, and I put this together. Like, imagine a movie where, like, the gang from Fast and the Furious, like, run across the monolith from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Right. And <laughs> they have to, like, battle, like, Eleven from Stranger Things. And uh, like the 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 colonel general from Avatar is also like involved trying to like stop the government from like taking over and stuff, like that's the insanity that's going on in this story. And somehow it's all tied together so fluidly and organically that it doesn't True. feel like clash of genres, you know? Yeah, that's that's a good point. I was gonna say one of the things that you there's a it seems like a hallmark in in a certain degree of of um japanese storytelling particularly in video games where you have that sense where it starts out on this very small scale thing right you have sort of this inconsequential group of people that suddenly you know against sort of even against their will are in the center of some kind of global universal right event right i mean you know you can see how final fantasy 7 drew from akira mm-hmm. and i mean a lot of ways now that i think about it um, but it's the same kind of thing, right? It's like this, you know, this resistance, you know, they're, I mean, they're terrorists, but they're like a resistance group that are just sort of doing their small little thing. And then suddenly they're at the center of the potential destruction of all of reality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, and it's a very I, common, very common Japanese role playing game story trope. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I, that's, I love stuff like that. I, I, to me, that is like, I mean, Star Wars kind of does the same thing, but I think like it does that without being, Campbellian about it, right? Mm-hmm. I don't see much of uh, Campbellian tropes happening in Akira, at least in the structure. I mean, there's definitely like you know the whole apotheosis of like Tetsuo, right? Um, but like it doesn't work itself into Kaneda's story in in terms of him reaching some kind of apotheosis, right? Um, so I think that's really interesting. Um, Something that one thing that I, another thing I love about that it's kind of hard for me to articulate. So it's going to sound kind of weird coming out of my mouth, um, but um, I'm also drawn to stories that are set in motion that ha- that are set uh, that are set in motion by an interesting backstory, where the backstory kind of becomes the text in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we never actually meet. Akira, the the title character. I mean, we we ultimately meet him, but we don't like we don't know him like we know Kaneda or Tetsuo. Can I just say Kaneda? Are you guys okay with that? <laughs> I went Kaneda. Yeah, I'm just gonna say Kaneda. <laughs> That's how I grew up saying his name. Imagine saying Neo all the time. Actually, it's Nao. Oh, I just say Nao now. Um. So um. So we don't actually like. Like we we're told like why Akira went off, but we don't we never really got to know him. We never got to see the series of events. We didn't get to take that journey with him. Martin Scorsese says that cinema is a matter of what's in the frame and also what's out of it. And I just feel like there's a whole other movie happening below the text, like and not not really even meta, not even really subtext, maybe just like metatextual. Like there's like a metatextual movie happening with this. And it's left, kind of left to our imagination as to what's happening in that movie. And if Tetsuo's story is, like, this scary and emotional, 
like I'm all, I've always imagined that Akira's story is like much more frightening probably and probably even much more heartbreaking because he's just like a child mm-hmm. while Tetsuro is like a you know older teenager um, and you know what man I just I love a good one title movie <laughs> just bam put that up there I like it that adds a mystique to me um, so there's that um Anyway, that's that's pretty much overall. Those are like the three like main reasons as to why I don't know if I really articulated that well about Akira about the backstory of. It. I mean, it also it's also kind of present in like you know like the Mad Max movies or at least Fury, Fury Road. Um, I don't know. Does that make sense? <laughs> D- sure. Okay. About, All right. About as much sense as Akira makes. <laughs> that's interesting. Uh, Matt is here. Occasional Matt is here. He's not on video, but we have him on call right now caller the president yeah, i'm the voice on the phone <laughs> it's, it's, I'm, I'm regressing backwards in technology it's working great he, it's the he, opposite of akira yeah he has no uh corporal body uh <laughs> he is ascended to the next plane uh with yes. a, with akira and the other espers uh in fact when he he didn't even call us he just we just heard all of a sudden heard I am occasional Matt. And now he's here. Mm-hmm. All right. So JP, your question to me was whether or not the movie made sense to me. Yeah. Um, I, I, part of me thinks that there was, this is also a problem of watching it in a sub rather than the dub. That's probably, that's probably true. Which yeah. I, the whole movie, I was like, there's clearly something lost in translation here. <laughs> okay. Um, and and I wanted, but I wanted to know what it was. Like I, I wanted to, I wanted to get into the headspace, right? Because you think about this movie and what what kind of you know, a, a Japanese audience is getting something very different out of it than an American audience, right? Because like in a Japanese audience, so. right, there's elements in this that is clear that's clearly meant to be satire and even clearly meant to be humorous that mm-hmm. I can see come through in the subtitles. Like for instance, the um, like the signs in the background. That I'm sure the dub doesn't translate, but the subtitles do. And so no, they translate like, that. They translate they some translate of them. They translate them. Oh, okay, because yeah. there's there's jokes like when the bartender's killed and it says this side up, like on the yeah. box. That's yeah. there's, there's like, yeah, little jokes and stuff in there. Okay, but um, there were so the the, the 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 political satire stuff that kind of comes through reminded me a lot of Shin Godzilla, um, which came out a couple years ago, which is took God, the Godzilla film genre and made it into a complete send up of japan's crippling political system um and um so there's some stuff like that that was very similar there so like i'm imagining that a japanese audience is watching this and they're getting you know they're getting particular things out of it it's an adaptation of very of a, of a of a very popular manga at the time um so i'm sure you know that's that but yeah. then you get an american audience can you imagine all right it's 1988 right <laughs> the only cartoons like the only time there had been an adult cartoon on, a, on like Amer- on like movie theater screens had been heavy metal, you know, what like ten years before, or maybe five years before, or whatever. Yeah. and it was so a year before Mermaid. Little Mermaid, so the Disney Renaissance hadn't even happened yet. So right, so but like that's the thing is, is right, we're talking like cartoons for Americans are like Land Before Time, you know, right? A yeah. you know, um, Amer- an American tale, mm-hmm. right? I'm just trying to think what was coming out in the 80s, you know, around this time that would have been in, you know, what Happy Frame Roger Rabbit was like the year after, right? Because that was 89. Yeah, I think so. Okay. But like, but, but we have this long cultural currency with this understanding cartoons are for kids mm-hmm. 
and they are silly and they have music and they have they do not have they do not have dudes merging with computers and turning into giant blob babies that absorb their girlfriends and crush them. you know <laughs> they i mean yeah. you know i i just try to imagine like the first time that they use the suborbital laser on on like what that must have been like for like someone who at that point had you know thought that you know I mean, just seeing it on like the big screen and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, you have this particular understanding of what a cartoon is, and what I want to know is, you know, you know that somewhere some parent let their little kid go see it, thinking that (laughs) it's oh, it's a cartoon, who cares? And that there was some little kid that was completely traumatized by what happened on the screen because his parents thought that it was, you know. But so, so that being said, um, I did have to read the Wikipedia plot summary after watching it to make sure I, you know, to like caught everything. And it seemed very clear that the dub version communicates things a little bit more clearly than the subtitled version. Well, there's, there's so much going on anyway. There's right. A lot, like I said, there's like large scale events, like in every sub story, every, every story going on. And they're not really subplots. They're all just concurrent. Like, right. They all have sort of equal time. They're all modulated evenly. Right. And well, and like the, and like the kernel, and Ryu, like you get such a brief view of that Ryu guy that when the colonel showed up, I was like, wait, are they the same person? <laughs> um, yeah. I was like, wait, no, that guy, he's, he has different hair. But um, by the way, I just want to comment on something about the animation on this. This is one of the few anime that I've seen where the people actually look Japanese. But I, um, I just struck by how contemporary it felt. Mm-hmm. Like that opening scene, like all the police brutality enacted against protesters. I was like, wow, they can make 2020. Yeah. Oh, I know. And that, yeah, especially there's like that scene where that, <laughs> there's that, it, it, it always makes me laugh. It's like, there's like a cloud of tear gas and like one protester just kind of stumbles out of it. And there's a, there's, there's like a, a riot cop there and he just shoots him. With, like, <laughs> yeah. Shoots him with a tear, with a canister yeah. or, you know, the joke with the grenade is also quite funny. Oh yeah, yeah. The guy pulls the grenade, and then he thinks it's a dummy, and they just sort of walk around with it, and then like seriously, like five minutes later, it explodes. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's you know, I'm watching it, and I'm trying to think of things that I know, you know, my weebo self knowing things about, you know, Japanese culture at the time, and I'm trying to think about how like this this movie reveals the anxieties that Japan fears. One, you know, as sort of being potentially the recipient, you know, participate, you know, like potentially being part of a nuclear war. Right. That, mm-hmm. you know, that they could watch it happen. Like, you know, we're the first people and only people who've experienced this and the rest of the world just seems to not care. So the anxieties around that. Um, there also seems to be a lot of anxiety around unchecked consumeristic growth and technology and how that's rotting away at Japan's soul, which in a lot of ways seems like it's the op- it, it's it's the same message as Totoro, but taken from a different angle. Right. Totoro is basically like, you know, it's the Rose Tico thing. We don't. You know, we don't win by destroying what we hate, but by, you know, but by, you know, preserving what we love. And so here's this movie that preserves the beauty of the countryside and all this kind of stuff. Whereas this movie is like, here's where things are going. Right. And it has this very almost um, clockwork orange element to it in the very beginning of the movie with these kids, you know, and they're, you know, sort of they live in. a. I mean, like the Japanese private school is just filthy, which was like would have been, you know, so unheard of 
you know, even now, but especially even in the 80s, to see like the amount of disrespect toward elders and just the graffiti and the trash and all of that everywhere. And just you get this sense of this, you know, there you got a few people just trying to hold it together, but everything is on the verge of yeah. just going. We also have like a degree of authoritarianism happening, kind of permeating, not just with like the cops and police coming together or cops and the military coming together, but also like the teachers are, like literally beating the crap out of them. Right. Like that one right. kid just like just blood comes gushing out of his mouth after being punched by this gym teacher. <laughs> right. Which one of the things that one of the things that, J- that, J- that Japan always has to deal with is that they have a very strong nationalistic and fascistic element in their society that has been there for. I mean, you know, they, they, they close their borders off to the world for 200 years, you know, and so that element is in there, too. Right. I mean, that's right. I mean, that's what happens at the whole kernel arc is he, he yeah he's his story Peterson, which is what happened in world war ii i mean so it yeah i'm actually really interested in the colonel he's actually one of my favorite characters um uh, but i want to know what matt thought about akira let me let me start with this chuck uh i don't think it makes a difference the dubbed version makes probably just as much sense at least on first viewing because i don't okay. know what the heck i watch really <laughs> uh i have a very vague idea and you guys are talking and I'm going, did I even watch the right movie? And the only reason I know I did is I verified with JP that I watched the right movie. Um, otherwise, I, I wouldn't be sure right now. I'd be like, guys, I think my call got disconnected and I would just not be here anymore. Can but, I just um, say real quick, I, I was so yeah. scared that this would end up being like that time I showed you and all of our friends in high school a fight club. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it kind of is. When we were teenagers. Um, (laughs) Yeah, kind of of is. Except I will say, JP, I would just like to tell our listeners out there that that was a defining moment in what has become our friendship. Because (laughs) although I was like, what is wrong with this guy? (laughs) I stayed. Everybody else left. <laughs> that's true. He stayed and he watched Silence so, of the Lambs with me. I did. Oh, I loved that speech. one, but I'd seen most of it before anyway. But yeah. good one. You followed up with an incredible follow-up, so you won me over. And for the record, years later, we had the discussion of how I saw Fight Club again and yeah. enjoyed it much more. And I was like, yeah, I wasn't ready for that, JP. Yeah, that was <laughs> too soon. Too soon. Um but yeah, uh, th- this kind of is um, this is this is Fight Club again. Except I don't think I'll watch this one later and be won over by it. It nails every one of the reasons that I'm not an anime fan. Okay, Th- what are those? What are those premises of anime? A a confounding plotline, which we were just talking about, where I'm trying okay. to follow it and I'm going, "What the heck?" Um, I much to what father Chuck was just talking about because I grew up in America and had very much an American understanding of cartoons. My taste has changed greatly, but anime still has this level of animated violence to it that I can't help but find disturbing, even though I don't have a problem with it, but I find it disturbing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's because I grew up, you know, in the culture where cartoons were for kids. Like, I got made fun of for watching cartoons and liking them. And when a Disney movie came out and I wanted to see it in the theater, people thought I was nuts. Um, But cartoons were always kids-related. And so, like, the -the over-the-top, violent, like, blood stuff, I I don't know. It's just, it's funny. I can watch a violent movie all day long and think nothing of it. 
Um, but you put a violent cartoon on and I just start like, Ooh, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. but more than that, uh, it's, it's body horror. Yeah. I don't understand the anime, the anime obsession with body horror, but body horror movies I don't like and body horror cartoons. I like even less. I don't want to watch a rolling mass of flesh, like <laughs> engulf and envelop people and they all merge into it's no, no, <laughs> just no. Well, I mean, I would say they accomplished what they were doing, right? Like you had that reaction of like, get it away from me. Unfortunately, some people were uh, not yeah, able to get away. Like, hey, can we get some F's in the like, chat for, for Cowrie, please? Just let's pay some respects to Cowrie. Cowrie. <laughs> Get it away, as in just like horrible way to die. No more, just no the more. Pain movie is inside me. I watched him. Oh yeah, that's why I don't like these. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 sorry, but no, just no. Really quick, can I just, mm-hmm. can I just acknowledge that since we talked about Kauri's death, real quick, that it inspired one of my favorite Kenny deaths in South Park. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was that's the Trapper Keeper episode, right? Yes. Okay. Because doesn't uh, Rosie O'Donnell die the same way? I don't remember, but I do remember that Kenny is the one who dies like Cowrie. Okay. Yeah. That, that's that's the that's the uh, the very uh, probably in bad taste now when Rosie O'Donnell is standing next to the mass. They're like, which one's Rosie O'Donnell? I don't know. Which one's... <laughs> I tried really hard to watch it from the perspective of an audience member in 1988, mm-hmm. you know, um, but I'm I will say that I think because so many things have derived from it that that initial like wow factor was sort of lost on me. I mean, I can remember when I watched it as a kid, you know, teenager, and being blown away at like the way they depicted Tokyo, you know, Neo Tokyo at night, and mm-hmm. just and and all of that, and still kind of remembering those feelings, but you know seeing a lot of the seeing a lot of it it just wasn't it wasn't quite as like mind-blowing as i'm sure it was to people in 1988 to see all of this stuff yeah i mean um it's impressive i don't want to i don't want to say that i'm like oh no so simple i mean it, you know it, it definitely looks like an anime from the 80s which is very simple you know a little more more simplified than what we've got later on but i mean um, what you're describing is exactly what i was afraid of yeah, I think we mentioned in the last episode <laughs> because it happens. Right. Uh, it it, hap- it comes with you know being exposed to to media. You grow up, you watch a lot of movies, a lot of TV shows, and then when you when you go back to kind of see what inspired that, it kind of it 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 the, the it uh, softens the impact. Right, especially bit. when it's more visual inspiration rather yeah. than like thematic inspiration. Right, like I'm pretty sure I could watch Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress and still like enjoy it and not be so bogged down that it's you know that inspired a new hope and and i will even argue this is my personal opinion watching it on a small screen it it also lessens that impact i've only seen seven samurai once in my entire life and it was when i saw it on the big screen at the academy motion picture arts and sciences uh metro global mayor theater Mm -hmm. i saw it on the big screen and i had a blast every joke hit every uh, dramatic moment hit uh, I took the emotional roller coaster. I'm like, wow, no wonder this is one of the greatest movies of all time. Meanwhile, right. if I watch it on DVD or something, I'm like, yeah, I could see why this is the greatest movie of all time. But you don't experience that. 
right right out like, of I, that setting i would love to see akira on a big screen oh totally oh my gosh yes no i could pass thank you <laughs> I, know. I know a great analogy to use for what you guys are talking about but i've already said it a million times on our show and got made fun of for repeating it so i'm not gonna do it but well you yeah, could just use a different think, movie like wizard of reason, oz i think the reason that this has everything in it that i don't like about anime is because it influenced so much of anime after it that I felt like I already saw all of this. Yeah, that makes sense. That's it. You dwell on it all you want. I'm not going to give you any explanation. And all I can say is I saw it coming. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think what's interesting about it is even in Japan, this movie was, this movie stood out amongst everything that was coming out of the time, especially in the 1980s when, it's considered to be, I guess, the golden age of anime. Am I right about yeah. that? Well, yeah. Well, this um, is had, definitely... Yeah, you had Mobile Suit Gundam, right. you had Macross, you had... Um, um, obviously, Miyazaki films where, you know, Studio Ghibli was making its first films. I mean, you had Grave of the Fireflies, which won an Academy Award. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. What were you saying, Matt? I mean, this one was a turning point as far as in America, right? Because yeah. I I can't think of anime without thinking of this title and without thinking of the image of him, the back in the red jacket walking toward the bike. Or just like the, like, the images of, a te- of Tetsuro with like the hair and the cape and stuff. Like, it's that's just kinda, that's like to me, to me, Akira and anime were like, I, it's where it's where I found out the other one even existed. Anime yeah. was not something that was in the world of my like understanding until I heard of Akira. Right. Mm-hmm. So, well, I mean, was that how it was over here in the U.S.? Was this like the first one to be a big deal over yes. here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was the first anime anime motion picture to be a big deal. Um, it. Um, well, I, I don't know. I actually think about it because I'm trying to think when Get Grave of the Fireflies came out in the U.S. because it was kind of a big deal too. But it's more of a critical darling. This thing took on a cult status, and I'd be, I, I would think that, you know, Akira, yeah, Akira I, definitely has a, it had more of a cult status kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, I don't know this for sure. I'm just, I'm just guessing. But I, my guess would be like Grave of the Fireflies is something you saw in an art house theater while Akira right. hit it mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. Remember when you could watch movies like that back then? Like you, you go to your mainstream movies over here and your art house movies over here. That, that was nice. Um, I think one of, and one of the reasons why it stands out so much. I didn't get I didn't get too much into the weeds on the technical stuff, but I got a a little bit into the weeds. Um, one of the things that uh, makes Akira so amazing is that this the the craft involved. Um, just the detail in the animation and stuff. Uh, like my my favorite scene of the whole movie is the uh, the beginning when we first meet uh, Kaneda and Tetsu and the, and the gang and stuff, uh, and when they chase the clowns because it's a really great way to sort of introduce your world because it mm-hmm. starts like in the little dingy bar, and then they go on they get on their bikes and they ride onto the highway and you're, you're you go into Neo Tokyo. Your first reveal to Neo Tokyo. Um, through the eyes of like the marginalized people, right? And, yeah, and uh, it's like it's and it's overbearing. Like that's the thing I yeah. love about the atmosphere of the movie is that the city is just it's it's overbearing. 
yeah, it's 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 it, there, there's definitely like a sensory overload happening while watching all of this sort of unfolding. Like, the way the perspective of like the buildings kind of move, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's all from the perspective of somebody like driving their motorcycle on the highway, right? Um, and and so I, I learned a little thing about animation, guys. Okay, you ready for this? When you animate something, you draw in ones, twos, and threes. Okay, so ones are uh, when your when your animation is one drawing per frame, and that operate that functions on twenty four frames per second. Twos are two drawings per frame, and that operates on twelve frames per second. And threes operate on three drawings per frames, and that's eight frames per second. So, the reason why Akira sticks out is because so much of this movie, and actually, there's there's been a myth, a cultural myth behind this movie that the entire movie is made up of ones. That's not true. <laughs> That'd be like impossible. Um, but there, are, there is a great deal of, of, of scenes that are in ones. And ones are used pretty sparingly in animation. They're used to kind of like um, to punctuate and emphasize something that's important or to showcase talent. But like a good chunk of this movie, because they have such a big budget, is made up of ones. That's why there's so much fluidity and mm-hmm. like how characters like turning or, or uh, big kind of epic things happening, like when um, Tetsuro like, approaches the, the, the Olympic stadium and he releases uh, Akira and like everything's just kind of like, you know, exploding. <laughs> uh, a lot of the uh, SOL stuff, you know, shooting down at the planet, a lot of that was done in ones. Threes are pretty common amongst anime because those are like those, those really static frames. Mm-hmm. You know that's 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 really common, and the cheaper to do. Um, so there's a there's a there's a detail to it. There's a fluidity to it. When you know Tetsuo loses his arm and he reconstructs it with like bits and pieces around him, you could see like the screws and the wires and like they're all turning into place and stuff. Like it's yeah. it's incredible detail. Um, makes it very visceral. Um, Things like that. So that's 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 the extent of my knowledge of the technical <laughs> achievements of this movie, and that's how it sticks out. So it, it pays to have a big budget. Yeah, well, and this is also one of those movies where the the guy who did the the guy who did the manga was involved in the in the film itself. Yeah, I will say I, I haven't read the manga, but I've seen um, you know frames from it and stuff, and like they're they're pretty. It's really like accurate. Like yeah. it's it's right off the frame. Right, it's one of the reasons why it's one of the reasons why I never like I've never been able to get into the anime version of Ghost in the Shell yeah. because I really like um, Masamune Shiro's um, character work. Okay. Um, that particularly the way I like because I, I also got became a big fan of the PlayStation game. There was a Ghost in the Shell PlayStation game, mm-hmm. and some of the animation work in it was done by um, based on Shiro's character designs, and I did not like. I can't remember the guy's name. Is the guy who did like Ninja Scrolls? He did the character work in Ghost in the Shell, and it just doesn't. I don't know. I don't like. I don't like his style. I don't like mm-hmm. everyone's over. Everyone's too muscular. I don't. I, it just. It. Yeah. It just doesn't resonate with me. But um, so it's cool that the they got the guy who did the manga to actually do the the film. So that there's that continuity between the looks. Uh, and that guy's name is. I did not write it down. <laughs> I didn't do great research for this. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, I should. It's mostly just been my own stuff. I don't know. Um, but if I can just kind of like talk a little bit about like the themes, and I think 
is what ends up making this movie sort of emotional for me. You have themes of like ambition and corruption and power leading to destruction, whether it's self-destruction or like in an outward destruction. And they're sort of adversarial to themes of like loyalty, duty and responsibility. And, um, and you know, if you want to get like super broad about it, uh, it's definitely the idea that power and like naked ambition can lead to destruction. Of course, right? Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is what that's what that's met with, right? Um, and one of the characters I'm really fascinated with in this movie is the Colonel, uh, because I I can't really tell. Maybe it's lost in translation. Maybe I'm just not reading it right. I can't really tell if this movie actually likes the colonel or not. <laughs> is he like an anti-hero? Uh, is he like a, is he reformed? Are we supposed to be like kind of rooting for the coup to happen? Um, that he or, or are we, is this supposed to be like a cool moment where he shoots the politician? Because I I I love that part. <laughs> That's kind of funny. <laughs> um, but he he's I just think he's a fascinating character because he in a way he almost kind of like juxtaposes. Uh, Kaneda and the three espers and that how they all sort of operate the colonel is operating off of law uh, off of like duty as a soldier the scientist even says like you know uh, he oh the colonel says that like he's over reconstruction he's over uh creating a new society and that it's all just run by hedonists and and corrupt capitalists now yeah and the, the scientist dr onishi says like and yet you still feel like you're duty bound to protect them and he's like, right. I think like a soldier. That's how I'm supposed to be. Yeah, well, that's the great. I mean, that's he's a great Japanese character in the sense that he doesn't fit into the black and white tropes that we find in 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 in, in Western cinema and Western storytelling. Um, you know, he's he he's in some ways he's the spirit of the samurai, right? He's the, yeah, because he's the soldier who feels duty bound to protect his people, and you know, so he sees himself almost like feudal lord, right? And mm-hmm. he's concerned that the bureaucrats and all of them have, you know, I mean, it's. I mean, I, there's just now that I'm even thinking about it, I'm just wondering, you know, what elements of like the May, like the Meiji Restoration, um, you know, the kind of stuff that we all think about every day. You know, yeah. the Meiji Restoration. <laughs> I don't even the, know what that is, but okay. <laughs> the May, so the Meiji Restoration was when um, was when the feudal was when the emperor was reinstated and they took the power away from the shogunate, and that was when Japan opened its borders to the West. Okay. Um, they were uh, they were concerned that co- that colonialism was coming and that this was their opportunity to stave off colonialism. They had seen from afar what had happened in China with the opium at the opium trade, and so what. But what wound up happening was that Japan tried to prove, in order to avoid colonialism, tried to prove to Western powers that they were just as civilized and just as whatever as them, and so they ended up taking on a lot of Westernisms. Um, oh, like the movie The Last Samurai with Tom yes. Cruise. Yeah, that's actually yeah. The, the The Last Samurai is 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 about is is actually is rooted in a, an actual historical story of among the last of the samurai who re- who who were rejecting the Meiji Restoration because again it took the power from the shogunate, which is largely the samurais, and put it into back into the emperor. Um, and so I think that there's yeah, textual okay. themes about that in in the colonel's character. Yeah. 
and yeah, I just I just have to point out how ashamed I am of JP that he didn't already know all of that because I mean, like Chuck said, we think about this like every day. So. Yeah, that was my that was a self-deprecating joke because this is the I stuff in my head. I don't even know what's going on anymore. <laughs> you you guys make as much sense as Akira did. I'm just, I'm, I'm here. Just well, I'm about to go even more in depth than this, so just you just hang on to your butts. Oh, I can't wait. I was sitting here going, you know what I wish I had is more Akira in my life, so take <laughs> me away. So the fascinating thing I find about the Colonel is that he's so turned off by, like, everything around him. Every every mechanic of the story, you have the, the corrupt government represented by uh, Mr. Nezu, and you have uh, the the scientist who's not necessarily he's not corrupt, but he is I would say over ambitious. Like mm-hmm. I think I think the colonel sees him as like oh he's going to recreate Akira and we're going to go through all this all over again and it's going to be his fault. Um, and then you have um, and then you know his overall feeling towards like the the biker gang and you know the streets, which is like he just he hates all of it. Yeah, he's duty bound to all of it. Um, and then you have Kaneda, who is also kind of duty bound to. Tetsuro, not so much out of duty, but just sort of a a sense of honor to him as as like his friend, as their relationship, you know, as part mm-hmm. of the, the gang, like his family. Um, you know, they're all, and then you also have the Espers, uh, who are made up of those those three uh, very frightening looking children, um, <laughs> who were not voiced by children in the dubbed version I watched when I was a kid, and they made that made it very hot. <laughs> um, but they kind of also have a moral res- responsibility, it seems, over Tetsuo, and that when they learned that he has their power, they accepted him as one of them. Yeah. Uh, because I think even uh, Kyoko said that, that he's one of us now, and we have to do something about it. And Kenny was like, no, no, I need to do something about it, because he's one of us. I'm supposed to kill him, not you. <laughs> um, so they're all kind of battling the same entities. Um if I can just can I can I get on my my BS, you guys? Sure. All right, if I go to my, I, like, I got to do my BS. You do your BS. Wait. All right. Wait. You're not you're not you're not already on your BS because like. We're about to go into hyperdrive, worse. baby. You just hang on. Oh man. So, so this is like how I read. Uh, this is how I read Akira, and it's that ambition and power has led to the destruction of Tokyo, and that has and that same ambition and power, even though there's been reconstruction and rebuilding. Uh, it's permeated into Neo Tokyo, and that um, scientists are still led by ambition to harness the destructive power of Akira and Tetsuo, and the corrupt government, you know, Nezu, is still aspiring to control the masses using that power. Uh, the colonel, who's bound by duty to Neo Tokyo, fights for the safety and status quo of the people. Kaneda, bound by his friendship and responsibility to Tetsuo, fights to stop his rampage, and the Espers accept t- Tetsuo as one of their own and use her power responsibly to end Tetsuo's, like, ambition. Um, using Kay, who we haven't really talked much about. She's a cool character, too. She's she's one of the freedom fighters. Oh, I shouldn't say... They're actually terrorists. Like, that's yeah. that's kind of what ends up being. But Kay herself, she has pure... I mean, she she's a freedom fighter to me. She's not a terrorist. I think she is, like... She's kind of... She's kind of driven by curiosity of what they discover through Akira. Not ambition, but curiosity. And also, she does have a sense of morale. I think a sense of morality, which is why I think the Espers use her ultimately to come to fight Tetsuo. You know what else I really like about this movie, and, and I was I was so interested in, in your thoughts. I wanted you guys to 
like listen to the soundtrack. It's not listen to the soundtrack, but like talk about the music. Like I love Kaneda's theme so much. Yeah. Uh, what I like about it is like it's all traditional. Isn't isn't it like all traditional Japanese music? Like, or there's it, some it's... there's some synthy stuff going on too. But well, it's it's apparently um, it's a combination of some Indonesian music, okay, and and then um, uh, music from Japanese no theater. Yeah. See, I can I can I I hear that and I and I love it. Yeah. Um, it's used to such great effect. Like Kaneda's theme is so good. Um. With the taika drums, just the the, the chorus, and you have yeah, that, I, that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say it's yeah. The, no, the soundtrack is phenomenal, and it actually reminds me. There's um, there's a track in the live action Ghost in the Shell. I can't remember on there's on that soundtrack. I that, that I I sat in the parking lot of that movie and downloaded the soundtrack to listen to <laughs> on the way home because I love that soundtrack so much. That's a cool um, soundtrack too, yeah. It's kind of similar to this one, isn't it? And they use sort of the traditional yeah. music and stuff. Well, yeah, but I'm talking about the, this is a live action. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's so oh, it's 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 electronica, but it's like electronica takes on some of this traditional Okay. But there's one there's one there's one song which is in it's um I don't know if it's really the major's theme in the movie or what, but there's, there's one that really calls really, really recalls to me the music in Akira and it was probably intentional, um, to do so. Um, yeah. And I just got to say too, Japanese music, you know, we have a stereotype of what Japanese music is. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember when I, when I first saw the 2014 Godzilla and they show the, the scene at the reactor where, um, Brian Cranston's character works and there's just this like booming Taiko drumming, yeah. I was like, this is really cool to hear because I think a lot of people don't know that tradition of Japanese music. But taiko drumming is like that's like it's like really traditional stuff. Yeah, I love taiko drumming. It's so yeah. cool. I I, I almost <laughs> I almost contemplated taking the taiko drumming classes at Murakami when I was still living in Florida. Oh, that would have been awesome. Yeah. I mean it's basically like taking another martial arts, like like the yeah. tradition involved in it and stuff. Like it's like put your whole body into it. Hey, so speaking of martial arts, I learned something kind of cool. So hula, which is, of course, you know, traditional dancing here in Hawaii, is a dance variation of lua, which is a Hawaiian martial art. And now that I know that there is a Hawaiian martial art, I kind of want (laughs) to, like, learn that. (laughs) Oh, man. Like, what does that look like? Like, Is it like hula fighting? Like, I'm fascinated. (laughs) Hula fighting. I love it. Become a hula fighter, please. <laughs> I, how awesome would that be? Like, I'll come to your hula tournaments. I'm like, I'm a priest and surfer, and like, I have a podcast, and I, you know, I write some articles and stuff here and there, and I'm also a hula fighter. It's <laughs> amazing. So, in this episode, we have we have talked about hula fighting, the Meiji Restoration. Um. We've talked about Matt evolving into an, a non-corporeal, trans-dimensional state. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you pretty much you pretty much just cover the stuff you know we think about like every day. Yeah. Uh, no big deal. Um. So, anyway, as I, as I was getting at, I see. I think to me, like this movie is trying to talk about like crap. I have things written down. Things like loyalty, duty, and responsibility. I see as sort of like an antithet an antith- an, an antithesis. To things like ambition, and I, I don't—I don't mean like ambition in general, but just like like a like a, just a rampant ambition and corruption and power. 
And I think destruction is even is an even bigger theme in this movie. This movie is bookended, by the way, by a bomb style explosions. Like I don't think you could be any more <laughs> on the nose about uh, what they're trying to say in this movie. You know, I, I, I was born in 1982. I have very fond memories of the 80s from my early childhood, right? Like, I have, you know, I think of New Wave, and I think of all that kind of stuff. But when I, when I read, like, Watchmen, and I watch Akira, and I start kind of contemplating the existential horror that people lived with and the constant fear of, you know, mutual nuclear annihilation between U.S. and Russia, um, it must have been a nightmare, right? Yeah. Like to produce this kind of fiction where the idea of like a movie bookended by, you know, trans-dimensional A-bombs is <laughs> yeah. like, is like, eh, that's a blockbuster. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. And, and, and it's probably why it's not, you know, when people remember the 80s, when, when people like us, millennials and or younger, reflect and are nostalgic by the 80s, that, that nightmare is not included in yeah. that. And it's probably because so much of the media output was like, oh, we need to, you know, uh, and maybe that's why there's so much fantasy happening back then. The media output was so fantastical and happy was to kind of, you know, get people's minds off of that for a little bit. You know, we think back to the future. We think, you know, Howard Howard the Duck. (laughs) Labyrinth. The Goonies, you know? Yeah. Neon. Yeah. Well, first I was... First, I was thinking, JP, you're talking about how, like, it's this idea of fighting against this uh, corruption of power, and it kind of starts as anarchy. The movie opens, and, like, anarchy is how they think they're going to win. Um, they're just, like, terrorists, basically, and running terrorists, around and destroying things. And terrorists kind of funded by the government. But... So anarchy, they feel, is their answer, but eventually what they find out is their answer is to go back to, like the very traditional before it all sort of concepts of, you know, like hope and loyalty and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm just seeing if I follow your story, it's kind of like if you were fighting the system here in America and kind of leaning toward this like anarchy mindset, but then decide, no, what I should do is become an Episcopal priest who moves to Hawaii and learns hula fighting. (laughs) I'm okay. just seeing if I followed that progression of the story there. Um, <laughs> is there a psychoanalysis <laughs> happening on the podcast right now? Is that... But but anyway, um, but no, and but serious serious comment. Um, I also think it's interesting what Chuck's talking about with this idea of living in fear of this like we could annihilate each other at any moment with atomic weapons and all that kind of stuff. Um, also, very much has a whole different level of meaning when it comes from this culture that's very shaped in a way that the world really isn't by the atomic bomb, by what has been done to them with it and how that has shaped their a lot of their science fiction and a lot of their fantasy. Um, just it's a very unique relationship to see something uh, see something that is that closely tied to it create something else that is warning against it mm-hmm. and yet admitting to its own fascination of it at the same time uh, matt you're just you got me thinking about something that um 
I was having a conversation with one of my seminary colleagues back when I was in seminary. We were talking about Watchmen, and he clued me into something in Watchmen that I had never thought about before, which is how Watchmen um, sort of captures this sort of 80s tendency to look back to the 50s. Right. We had this in, in, in America. We did this. Right. We would look back to the golden age of the 50s. Right. It was all about like capturing that. And that's sort of, you know, where the Republican Party kind of got itself stuck. Right. Is this idealized into the 50s. And so um, what made me realize that Kira is doing the same thing is it's it's actually looking back to the 50s um, because but like but like a reinterpretation thing of it, because the whole movie is set place during Reconstruction. Right. Well, it's Which, it's after Reconstruction. It's like they well, kind of, the thing yeah. it's after Reconstruction, but like thirty years, right? Thirty years after there's been this disaster that destroyed, that right. destroyed Tokyo and and upended everything. It's roughly the same time frame removed from when the when 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 Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Oh, ended. oh, that's what you're saying. Okay, yeah, and yeah. So, and so mean. Japan went through that period of Reconstruction, and so here you are, you know, the '80s. Japan was living into like the boom of what that wrought, what it meant to be, you know, a post reconstruction, you know, I mean, they were buying up property all over the world. I mean, it was, you know, it's in terms of like the real, I mean, just all kinds of Japan's wealth was, un, was amazing in the eighties. Mm-hmm. And then, so you've got this movie that's basically like, okay, let's map back onto this time period. Like, let's imagine that another thing happens, that like a, a disaster happens and let's rebuild again. It's just, again, it's that kind of sense of like using the future to sort of look back to the fifties and like for us in the West, it was like, Hey, the fifties were great. Like the fifties were this time of, you know, of, of leave it to beaver and, you know, interstate highways and prosperity, you know, but only for certain people, but we're not going to talk about that. It's just, you know, that's what we make the fifties into. Whereas in Japan, it was like, Hey, when we're looking back at this stuff, it wasn't all that rosy for us because, you know, Tokyo had been burned to the ground and our cities have been nuked and reconstruction was chaos. And, um, and all of that. So yeah, I just, we, it's just kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, we, we tend to look back and glorify the past and be like, oh, if we could only go back to that. Whereas this movie is looking back at the past and going, it's a warning about if we mm-hmm. don't change something, we're just doing it over again. Yeah. Right. Like, it's, we're just leading down the same road. And it's funny that the movie's not funny, but it takes place after Reconstruction, mm-hmm. meaning... They should be like back to what's good. And it feels like a post-apocalyptic movie. It's like your reconstruction has led you to a place that is going to lead to horrible destruction. Like the whole yeah. way it's it's laid out is like you're watching. It feels like Mad Max. And I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, they're riding around fighting each other. But more than that, it's the level in which the city around them looks in this cartoon. It looks built up and it looks like it's running great but there's something about it that just looks dirty and looks wrong and run down and like it's yeah. at the end of its life so because it feels it, post-apocalyptic yeah. when it's supposed to be after they finally rebuilt everything and because it's technically it technically is post-apocalyptic because after uh the akira explosion um it it set off world war three because other countries thought that a in the manga, in the manga at least, and I guess that's the subtext here as well, that uh, the rest of the world thought that a nuclear bomb had gone off, and so they it it started the the you know the mutual destruction of all the nations and right. stuff. Right. So it's right, it technically guess, is post-apocalyptic. Yeah, but I guess I guess I should put it this way: is 
in the U.S., we have two concepts. We have this concept of, you know, like how things are now. And if we're not careful, the apocalypse will happen. And then we have a concept of like the post-apocalyptic movies where everything is gone and wiped right. out and dead. Whereas their concept is the apocalypse happened. We lived through it. We rebuilt it. We're alive again. Everything's thriving. And yet we've driven ourselves to the point where the next apocalypse is going to happen. And that's and why we'll I love from that one. That's why we'll I lo- try from that one. But if yeah. we don't change, we'll be apocalypse three. Like Right. And that's why I love the colonel so much, because he's designed to prevent that. And so that's why he's seeing everybody around him just doing it all over again. He's seeing the scientists, you know, furthering their ambition to recreate Akira. He's seeing the government, the, the politics are not agreeing on anything. They're not getting anything done. They don't even care about what he's doing, why they even keep funding him. It's why he does the coup. <laughs> it's why he tries to take over. Like, I wouldn't do it that way. Um, but, but because we kind of know that these terrorists, these freedom fighters are funded by a corrupt politician. We can't use that. So like he takes the matters into his own hands um, by uh, enforcing the, this sort of authoritarian revolution. Uh, Meanwhile, the marginalized bikers are the ones that are actually saving the world here. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But I want to, I want to know, like, like we're talking so much about cultural stuff. We're so talking so much about, um, uh, the the epic stuff that's happening. Uh, but I want to know what you guys' thoughts are on Kaneda and and Tetsuo specifically, specifically, especially Tetsuo. Um, I feel like Tetsuo. I mean, for me, I think Tetsuo. Is, I, I feel, Tetsuo. I feel like he needs a little bit more writing in the movie. <laughs> um, but but it's a, but it's great in that it doesn't hold your hand. It allows you to kind of fill in some blanks. Mm-hmm. Um, into what he uh, into who he is as a character. Um, I'm trying to remember what what character that, that in something recent they basically have ripped off this movie. I mean, I guess in a way it kind of reminds me Chronicle. Of, I was gonna say Chronicle. Definitely mm-hmm. reminds me of Chronicle. I mean, Max Landis said himself that it's just Akira. He said it okay. himself. <laughs> um, the Blair Witch Akira. Yeah, I um, I, I I always resonate with those um with that storyline of the you know the, the the two orphans that one is picked on and the other one just sort of benevolently looks out for the little guy yeah right and so that character i just i, I just you know i just feel for that character um and so the idea that they would then turn him into a villain but he's not because he doesn't he doesn't seek out this power. It happens to him. Yeah. And, and, and in so doing, it kind of brings something out in him, survivor instinct, whatever it is, that then ramps everything up to 11 where he feels like he doesn't need to be protected anymore. Right. And I just, so I just find that, I just find that development, that arc very interesting. Well, in the, the, in the manga, they don't really go into this much in the movie. It's, it's hinted at in the movie, but like Tetsuo is actually like a drug addict. Mm. Um, and you know, at the, when he goes back to the bar, when he's like at full power and he asks the, um, the bartender for capsules, right. That's kind of when he loses his mind. Mm. And, and the director even says, I have this quote from the, well, I'll get to that later. Um, and that's why I like, I like, I mean, I think, uh, Canada is so fascinating to me because he kind of like, 
he doesn't have many qualms about the fact that he has to kill Tetsuo. Like, he takes that responsibility pretty seriously. He's like, yeah, I kind of feel like, A, he feels like he's bound to do it, and B, is like, I'll I'll joyfully do it. <laughs> like, I'll do it right now. Yeah. <laughs> like, their little standoff, you know, they're quipping. Right. You know? Um, so, but, but ultimately, um, when, you know, the singularity happens, and Kaneda's drifting in and out of both Akira's and Tetsuo's consciousness and experiences their memories, you know, at the end, he's, it ends with Kaneda on his knees and, you know, he catches that little ball of light that falls. Yeah. And he says, uh, he says, thank you, which is really interesting. He says, thank you. And I always thought he was saying it to Kaneda, but he was actually saying it to, to Kay who saved him. But I also think, I think that also is probably supposed to be like a dual thing. Like he is saying thank you to Kay for saving him because she called out to him in the, in the, in the ether and he came out. But also thank you to Tetsuo. Or maybe he was saying thank you to Akira because Akira had was like helping him see Tetsuo's memories. Right. Like that he what he did was like the right thing of looking out for him and stuff. Or maybe it was just a cosmic sense of gratitude. Yeah. Cause it is interesting because he grasps the ball of light and he's on his knees and he says thank you. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was interesting. Which I mean is a prayer posture, right? Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. you know. Um. Yeah, and the ending is is fascinating. Maybe there were supposed to be sequels. I don't know because the manga is much more. So much more happens after that. Well, they. What I understand is that the film captures like the first half of the manga. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Because the second half of what the, the, what I understand from the manga is that Tetsuo winds up overseeing like his own country. Yeah, and, and Kaneda kind of becomes like a, a radical. Yeah. He he actually becomes like they, they start to sort of embrace Akira as that symbol, like the, the radicals are. <laughs> the weird cultish yeah. people are in the movie. Um, so that's kind of fascinating to me. But like but the ending is interesting because it ends with, you know, him and the other biker, Kai, and they're just like they kind of ride off and they're like clunking motorcycles now, they're all like Yeah. <laughs> and then like the colonel is just like, huh, well, Okay, <laughs> just walks away. Right, <laughs> like and he he pretty he much failed. Dead, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's just walking around aimlessly. Yeah, Matt, any uh, any thoughts on these characters? I know you you have a limited time left. I don't know if you had any final thoughts you wanted to comment on Tetsu or Kaneda or I... anybody else. We haven't talked no, much about the Aspers, who I, not... I think are awesome. Yeah. No. I, I don't, but it's honestly not because I joked around how much I didn't like this movie. I do have to say, I don't like it, but I very much appreciate it, which I think we can tell by the conversation that we have about it. Mm-hmm. Um, what they're doing, why they do it, I love all of that. It's just personal. I think, I mean, I'm sure if we broke down my psychology, it has to do with, you know, like a childhood being raised conservative and blah, 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 in this cartoon. But anyway, but these characters know the reason I don't have a thought on them is not because I don't care. It's because I don't want my bias to come out in what I say about these characters, because I think people should watch it and should... Um, create their own thought and opinion around it. And I think what you and Chuck are saying is helpful 
and anything I say is going to be slanted because of the fact that um, the movie itself just was, you know, it just rubs up against you wrong. Um, so, yeah, no, I think that the characters are deep. I will say that. To give you a very general concept of it, I think the characters are deep. I think it touches on in the first episode we did where we were just talking about what we think about anime in general. Yeah. I think this movie is like a magnifying glass to everything I was talking about, about how they're not afraid to dive fully into like issues and topics and things that most people shy away from, but they just go for it. Um, and I think the characters here are incredibly deep in what they're dealing with and where the story goes and how, see, even like JP, the half of the time you're talking, I can't stop thinking about what you're saying about the drug addict thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm still trying to wrap my mind around how much that changes the story arc for me about how he's an addict and how an addict who gets this power becomes addicted to the power in a way, but he's not addicted to it in the sense that the, the government that's screwing things up is addicted to power. Like they want to become more powerful so they can rule everything. He's not addicted to it in that way. He's addicted to it in the simple sense that he believes it's what's keeping him alive and what will help him to thrive. It's a, like his story arc is a full, full on like picture into an addict mindset, how you become addicted to something and you realize or you think, not realize, you become addicted to something like a substance and think, I cannot live without this, but if I could just have more of it, then I could I could thrive and I could achieve and I could be something good. I just need a little more. Um, and that changes the whole movie to me. So, hmm. so yeah, it's specifically on the characters, I don't want to downplay them by making a joke or trying to give my thoughts on the characters. What I will say is they are there's levels and depth to it that I didn't even realize. And as we're talking about it, I realize more and more. And I think people should just, you know, see it and see what you think, because <laughs> it's interesting. And oh. I won't watch it again, but you should totally watch it once. Give it a shot. And if you hate it, we'll talk and then I'll make fun of it with you. But until then, no, like. It is an incredibly well-written, well-done, and amazing, like, uh, and what it it accomplishes, what it set out to do in a way that is amazing. I can appreciate that, even though as far as watching it, I don't want to do it again. <laughs> it's like the edge of this is and Evangelion. Apparently, and apparently, if the word Neo is in it, just tell me out. Like, Neo Tokyo, Neo Genesis, Neo don't need it. So I'll, no matrix I'll, for Matt. No, no, his freaking name is his name is no. forever for me. His name is Neil. Remember, my Call name back. is Neil. Awesome. So. I let me something. I also Matt talking about this kind of jar jogging for me is um, one thing I realized about the movie is that like in some ways Tetsuo is. Like to use like to get theological for like use theological language. He's almost like a sacrament of what is happening on the bigger scale of the film, right? Because the the sacrament is the 
the vis the 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 outward invisible sign of something invisible that's going on, right? Mm -hmm. And what this shows is that power makes people ugly. Yeah. Right. Like <laughs> there's no there's no moment in this movie. Okay, if this were a, if this were if this were a Western film, they'd probably try to do something to make Tetsuo look like a badass when he gets all this power, right? Because you're they're trying to say, oh, like, look, he's like, you know, like he's scary, but he's also cool, right? Like Vader, like you know, we've got this character that he's he's total, you know, he's total yeah. villain, but I mean, we also he, want to make he him puts look on cool a cost. He puts on a costume, like just right. draped. He's like, oh no, no, I'm like, right. We want to be able to sell the toy of the villain yeah. character, right? Mm -hmm. You you cannot sell powered up Tetsuo as a toy like that's <laughs> there's no he's not a toy yet character right he is yeah. absolutely grotesque and and that's when he's at the height of his powers that's what the espers say he's at the height of his powers when they act and so I think it's fascinating that what happens to him and the way power turns him into this absolute month you know this you know bioorganic bait you know this uh you know or what is it a bio cybernetic baby thing mm -hmm. um that that sort of reveals what power has done to everyone else in the story. They've right. all become well, monsters. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean I mean and when we're introduced to him at the beginning, I honestly I hadn't I didn't know the story to this. I'd always heard like I said, I always heard the title. I always knew the image. I always had it tied so close to anime that they were almost inseparable, the word anime and Akira. But I'd never seen it before. So when I start watching this there's this guy at the beginning of the movie these guys are running around they're doing all this stuff they're like the cool guys you know even though they're horrible but they're like the cool guys but then there's this guy who looks like a bumbling child involved and i'm like how does he fit into this he he's too childlike he's too like, like i'm almost like why would they draw draw him like that are you talking about nezu like a, the like a little kid but he, well, no, I, it's, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm messing the whole thing up because in my head, his character starts off like simple and innocent seeming. Okay. And his look and appearance, and it ends with what Chuck is talking. It ends. We, I don't want to talk about how it ends. <laughs> <I don't, laughs> well, do you know what I realize it is? I realized that, what I realized, Matt, what these guys are. This is Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> this, this company, Bobby. Right? Yeah. This is Saturday Night Fever. Just filtered. oh yeah. Cool. Like, oh my gosh! It totally is. Ah. Whoa! For those of you who have not seen Saturday Night Fever, it is not about disco. Is <laughs> absolutely not. If you go, if you go into Saturday Night Fever thinking, "Oh, a disco dancing movie," yeah, no. <laughs> no. That's a movie that's unpleasant for me. Like I, I kind of get mad now. I guess <laughs> that movie is pretty yeah. unpleasant. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, John Travolta, Canada. Yeah. Oh, dude. Yeah. We're onto something. Totally. We gotta watch. We gotta talk about Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, because there's a lot of similar things happened in that movie too that had to do with uh, same things here. Um, what was I gonna say? Well, just on what you what you touched on, Chuck, and what you're also kind of getting at as well, Matt that I think is really interesting and in, in how people are, are presented, how people in power are presented in this movie. And it's that, um, you know, the most powerful person in this movie is, is Mr. Nezu, who's the big corrupt politician who has this like really distinct, like rat face. Right. Yes. Um, and he's, he's like, a, just a gelatinous rat. That's how I would describe him. 
a gelatinous rat. Yeah. <laughs> and then you have uh, the espers who are still children. Their powers have kind of stunted, or maybe even the experiments done on them have, have stunted their growth, but they're aged up, but they're very powerful, but they're also very responsible of their power. And so they they kind of retain that innocence. I uh, just wanted to touch on that because I feel like we haven't talked much about the espers and I kind of wanted to just touch lightly on that and how they're presented and who they are. I, th- I think they're really fascinating, interesting characters. Right, like um, the little kids that have sort of, I mean, like they've been made old through. Yeah. What? I mean, they, they are their age, but they've been stunted. You yeah. Know? So it's like saying that the responsible ones, you know, they, they kind of retain their innocence because they're so responsible of what they have. Right. With what they have and their own Even kind of they, sense of morality. Well, see, they, they look like infant babies. You see, and I, yeah. Yeah, well, and I, but I see, and I, I saw them as representing children who were aged too quickly by understanding what's actually happening around them. That, that too. So, I mean, like, it, it, like that, I, that could I, also be wisdom, you know? With that yeah, comes wisdom. I, I, but I took it as lost childhood. Um, yeah lost innocence almost and maybe that has to do with the fact i'm just gonna say maybe that has to do with the fact that i'm seeing it through the lens of school police (laughs) and how i deal with children talking about issues that as a 36 year old man i never had to deal with Mm -hmm. and that child when you're talking to them seems so old in a way yeah um, so when power is, without getting into detail about what I was just talking about, I'll put it this way. When those with power take that power out on the innocent and children who are the most innocent in our society are the ones who see it and live through it and realize it, it wipes out their childhood and causes them to seem old and aged way beyond where they should be to the point where you just are heartbroken by this child who's standing in front of you that never got to experience just being a child because somebody with power um, used that power on them. That's what I saw in those characters, even though they were not easy to watch and look at from an aesthetic point of view because cartoon but um that's what i got from them and in this case they actually have the power but it's they're being manipulated by people who have more power than them and are controlling what they can and can't do like yeah it's just you know totally all right so anyway i think that's a good place to to drop it it's a good place never to never pick it up again what are we going to watch next week Matt, now that we're now that we've watched uh, it, yeah. did you choose? That was something? a super. That was a super abrupt tie-in. But here's what I'll say. Okay. Um, first of all, I I don't like the two of you for the simple fact that I don't even need to know about things like apps, like the what's the one Chuck that you have your app that you watch anime on? Oh, Crunchyroll. Yeah, Crunchyroll. I didn't need to know what Crunchyroll was to have a happy life. I watched this movie and was like, all right, here we go. Confounding storylines, graphic violence, clandestine uh, government conspiracy groups, uh, magic powers mixed in with technology, all the things I don't like about anime. 
So for next week, we're going to watch um, clandestine government groups, graphic violence, magic mixed with technology, and all the things that I love about anime. <laughs> okay. Um, because you're going to have to sign up for Funimation. Right. Uh, it's free if you want, don't mind commercial breaks. If you hate commercials, don't worry. They have a seven-day free trial. Just make sure you cancel. I watch commercials because I don't want to forget to cancel, and I'm not paying for it. Okay. Um, anyway, we are going to watch at least episode one and two of Witch Hunter Robin. Because why not? It's the only one I ever absolutely loved. <laughs> okay. okay. And cool. I went and watched the first two episodes of it today. I wish I could have watched more before we picked because I was trying to see, okay, if we watched like three episodes, would there be enough of like a story arc to at least complete something? Mm-hmm. But I only made it to episodes one and two, and that's okay because it, it that's all we need to talk about what I want to talk about and the difference between that and Akira. Um, but... If you feel like continuing to watch it, I'm going to try and get a couple more in and see if, like, three and at the absolute max four episodes, max four episodes in, okay. if there's some kind of full story. Because the episodes are only, like, 20 minutes each. Oh, okay. That's 25 okay. minutes each. So I watched a movie for both of you. I figured if I can fit it within four episodes, then I will. But if you're listening to this, just watch episodes one and two to get an idea of the show. That's a point. Okay. The point is just get an idea of it because we're going to talk more about, on my end, JP's going to have to do the homework and Chuck will fill in all the uh, um, cultural and anime stuff. And JP will have to do homework on, like, who did it because I don't know. But you only need <laughs> one episode. All the work I did on this one. <laughs> yeah, you only need one episode, much less two to get okay. the concept of the difference in tone in the actual animation and what I will talk about is even just color choice and how that makes a difference between Akira, which I didn't want to watch, <laughs> and Witch Hunter Robin, which I loved. Okay. So Hey, um so did you want to watch Akira? Is that No. No, I didn't. I, I just did, want to make sure if you want to emphasize it one, one last time. I don't know if you're. I didn't. I didn't want to watch it. <laughs> okay. I don't. I don't want to watch it. I'll never watch it again, and I'll probably watch it again soon because now we talked about it, and I'm like, okay, cool. What did I miss? And if I Fight Club this thing, I'm going to be mad at myself. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Matt. Uh, be sure to join us again next week with Witch Hunter Robin. Be sure to like and subscribe. Leave a comment. Join us again next week. Have a wonderful week. Good journey. Good journey. Good journey.